Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Welcome to another in the ABA Journal series on Legal Rebel Trailblazers. I'm Terry Carter, a senior writer for the Journal, and today I'll be speaking with Bruce McEwen, that's spelled M-A-C, capital E-W-E-N. He's considered by most who are interested in such things to be an astute observer on the good, the bad, and the terminally ill of big law firms. In some ways, McEwen's life was changed more by majoring in economics in college than it was by going to law school. He says he's never understood what thinking like a lawyer really means, but he knows how to think like an economist. He looks at the world in terms of supply and demand, opportunity costs and failures of collective action, asymmetric information, things like that. And after working as a securities lawyer in a couple of big Wall Street firms and then in-house at Morgan Stanley for 10 years, he set out on his own 15 years ago to pursue his passion for understanding the management of law firms, the big ones in particular. He's become a noted guru at just that, starting with his blog called Adam Smith Esquire, usually spoken in short as Adam Smith-esque. He was early to the game with sophisticated online discussion of economic issues facing law firms. The blog, though he prefers the term publication, is a storehouse of knowledge and ideas, no small amount of it in his more than 1,500 articles posted there over the years. His business partner of 10 years quips that it's a non-profit. But in reality, it's a significant credential and brand for their growing consulting business, based in New York City, where best to reach worldwide. McEwen is bearer of bad news and maybe good news in the detailing of existential threats, opportunities, and strategies. In one of his three books in recent years detailing challenges and problems, strategies and solutions, McEwen devised, in biological science style, a new taxonomy for the legal market writing that a long stasis has ended, and we now have, quote, new forms of life emerging, some of which will prove adaptive and survive, and others of which will be rejected by the antibodies of the marketplace. And with that Darwinian thought, welcome to the show, Bruce. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, and um, you were exceedingly generous in your introduction. I hope I can live up to it for our audience. Well, let's go at it, and I expect you know much of this off the back of your hand. The big law ecosystem has been changing dramatically in recent years. Is there a particular event or point in time here, or is it simply that pretty much everything seems to have been speeded up in the digital age? Well, certainly for the legal industry, lawland as I call it, there there was a decisive point, which was the great uh, financial meltdown of about 2008. It was a global event, at least in the northern hemisphere, the more developed economies, the U.S. and the U.K., where most of the legal marketplace is, frankly. And it's an event that uh, there's no going back. There were people for the first few years, I published my first book in 2010. It was called Growth is Dead, Now What? Not a terribly subtle title, but there were certainly people at the time who argued that growth was by no means dead. This was just another cyclical downturn, and we, the law firms would come back to uh, raising rates 5 and 6% a year, like clockwork, as they always had after every prior recession, the dot-com bust, etc. But this time was different, and 
if you look at uh, law firm revenue through any set of metrics available in the market, the AMLA numbers, Thomson Reuters peer monitor, the city bank data, uh, and if you adjust for inflation, which is simple data hygiene, certainly to an economist in uh, looking at time series of dollars, there is no growth. Demand has been hovering around plus one to minus one percent change per year in constant dollars for the last decade. That does not mean, however, that the segments of the pie being won or lost by different firms are static. In fact, I think they've never been more dynamic. Well, what's been the most significant result or results from that big change in 2008? Well, you know, Terry, a lot of people talk about some of what I'm beginning to think are, you know, conventional uh, explanations, all of which are legitimate, but we've been hearing them for quite a while now. Clients are now in the driver's seat. That is absolutely true. Demand is flat in real dollars. Um, that is absolutely true across the industry. But I think in some ways, the most interesting thing going on is that if you look at the market for legal services, which is really what clients buy, there is no such thing as a market for law firms. And this comes as a surprise to many partners in law firms, but there's only a market for legal services. Law firms are a subset uh, or provide a subset of the supply into that market. Now, it's the largest subset by far. It's about $300 billion in the U.S. on a $500 billion market, but it was about $300 billion 10 years ago in constant dollars on a uh, smaller market. The other two big slices of the pie um, are, of course, in-house counsel, and I'm talking about um, lawyers and corporations doing legal work, not what they spend outside. That obviously goes to the law firm slice. But interestingly, and more importantly, a new phenomenon, which for lack of a better term, we're calling alt-law. According to Thomson Reuters, 10 years ago, um, that segment was not measurable. Uh, Last year, it was about $25 billion. Uh, again, on $500 billion, so, you know, 2%. And we're projecting that to grow at an annual compound rate of about 40% for the next decade, which, um, you know, you do that for a decade and the Rothschilds will tell you what you got. You, you know, you've got a lot of growth. And I, I think that's the most interesting thing going on, that clients are realizing that law firms don't have to be their one-stop shop. It's kind of like clients have lost their virginity, and now they're um, they're really exploring this quite enthusiastically. And are many of the lawyers paying attention to this, or the law firms? Great question. Yes and no. Yes, they are paying attention. There's never been as much sort of free-floating anxiety, <laughs> in my experience in this industry, as we're seeing now. But no, in the sense that, with some exceptions, and and I laud the exceptions, believe me, it's the most interesting part of my job, Hmm. but with few exceptions, um, firms are not actually responding in any meaningful way. They're worried, but they're paralyzed. And that would lead me to believe that some other firms are just licking their chops. There was a an interview with uh, Brad.
Red Carp in uh, the Lawyer, the UK publication, just uh, earlier this week. He's where he Paul said, Weiss. Uh, the industry. Uh, Paul. He said he runs Paul Weiss. Yes. Uh, obviously, a firm that's been shooting the lights out in terms of performance for the last few years uh, under Brad. And uh, he said the industry is changing at warp speed, quote unquote, and that firms that uh, are not nimble may uh, face a very difficult future. He said managing a law firm right now is not for the timid. And uh, I would certainly second Brad's thought on that. Um, I wouldn't quite go so far as to (laughs) use the analogy warp speed. I think if you ask um, people in the uh, publishing or (laughs) music industry about warp speed, they'll have a slightly different, will have had a slightly different experience, but be that as it may, in terms of lawland, it's unprecedented. That's, That's absolutely safe to say. Well, just one aspect of this, but I guess a large one is that For decades, we've been hearing about the coming demise of the pyramid system with associates billing, you know, just unspeakable numbers of hours of work. That's drone work. They're pretty much reinventing the wheel time and again. But it's still here, a lot at least. Uh, Why so slow to change? It's incredibly profitable. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist and have no (laughs) burning desire to be one. But um, there is certainly copious evidence that human beings, and and I think lawyers, this is doubly true of lawyers, all things equal would prefer not to change. And what that really means in the business world is that uh, organizations and individuals have to be in some degree of pain before they will change. You know, people keep smoking until they have the heart attack or whatever. And it's the same, I'm I'm confident, with law firms. There are a lot of people making a lot of money in law firms. And in a way, it's entirely rational. What's wrong with this picture? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if your time horizon is only five or ten years for your career, which is the case with many of the people running these firms, you know, you can hope the roof doesn't fall in during that time. And I would bet you're going to be right. Well, the the clients, the companies, I gather, are changing. I'm, I'm familiar with Legal OnRamp. I know you are, and, and Paul Lippi, and how the clients themselves are kind of organizing and creating their own databases of contracts that they can all share, but run it through artificial intelligence. And uh, some of that is the kind of thing that these pyramids of associates do. Is it just that uh, some law firms will be overwhelmed by inevitability, but just as likely killed by it? I think that when, you know, one of the questions, it's almost a parlor game question, Terry, that I get asked, frequently, Janet and I, my partner, get asked is, well, you know, if all of this is going to change, when is it going to happen? And how are we going to know it's happening? And the famous piece of advice about predicting is you can predict what or you can predict when, but not both. So I will predict what. (laughs) Um, I think what's going to happen 
is a number of firms that are not destinations for any particular expertise, specialty. Uh, they're not uh, the go-to port of call for, for whatever, employment, tax, real estate, high-end litigation. Uh, they're just sort of general purpose, full-service firms with nothing terribly distinctive. Those firms will be the ones to start falling by the wayside. Um, and it will be, uh, it, listen, I love this industry. I don't want to see any firm fail. But you mentioned Darwin at the beginning, and um, that's what happens. You know, clients vote with their wallets. Uh, I must remind the audience of what uh, a wise bankruptcy professor taught me at Stanford Law School many years ago when um, some sort of soft-hearted students were uh, exclaiming about all the pain inflicted on people when their companies went bankrupt. He said, they're not taken out and shot. They find other jobs. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's the case. You know, uh, lawyers are, are in demand. The world is not getting less complicated in terms of regulations and globalization. There will always be lots of room for lawyers. There just may not be room for all the law firms housing them at the moment. Well, I have it on pretty good authority that about 50% of them graduated in the bottom of their class. But with that aside, um, you've written about this, I know, that there's a star system. We have a star system, and it's developing even faster, where the very best lawyers are exercising free agency. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I've thought about this a lot, and there's a whole chapter about it in my latest book, Tomorrowland, as you might have noticed. It's a market thing, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to sound cute or, or you know, agnostic about this, but we live in a war for talent in, in Lawland. Um, talented people are much, much more valuable than untalented people. This is true in, you know, financial portfolio management. God knows it's true in sports and among celebrities. Um, it's true, so I am told, and I have every reason to believe it, with software engineers. It's certainly true with, you know, artists. You name the performing art or, or still art form. And it's true with lawyers. And what happens is even if the distribution of talent is more or less falls along a bell curve, the distribution of compensation is anything but a bell curve. It tends to migrate left to its own devices towards a power curve where the very most talented people get multiples um, in terms of compensation of what the B players get. And, uh, it just it's just the way these markets work. And I will grant you uh, readily the that there's a big distinction between law and some of those other industries I just um, enumerated because we don't benefit from um, the miracle of zero marginal cost mass media distribution. But never nevertheless, even if it's not as extreme as some of those other industries, you know, compare John Grisham to Amazon author number 10,000, it's still real that there is a, um, 
I guess it's fair to ask me, or I'll, I'll rephrase the question, Terry, if I may. Mm-hmm. Do you like it, Bruce? Do you like this phenomenon? Do yes. you approve of it? And my answer is, it makes me very uncomfortable. Mm. I just think it is putting centrifugal pressure on a bunch of law firms that is potentially dangerous. I would submit that almost any, well, I'll, I'll, let, me, let me make that absolute. I would submit that any high-profile law firm failure of the last 10 or 15 years has been driven by departures of key partners. And there comes a point where everybody who has not departed looks around and says, this place is not going to make it. And it can take on a life of its own in shockingly short order. This is a um, phenomenon of the partnership model, but we <laughs> law firms, as we know them, are <laughs> follow the partnership organizational form. So that's not really anything you can do anything about unless you want to change, unless you want to abandon the partnership form. So this is different from, say, Major League Baseball, where you might have one or two players on a team who are megastars and are paid accordingly. And indeed, when they come to bat, more often than others hit home runs, or when they get on the pitcher's mound, more often than not, shut down the other team. But there are six, seven, eight other players on the team who do good jobs and get paid fairly well. It's not analogous. This is something that is just not good for the law firms. It's. I, I'll tell you the difference. I think the difference is that, as you noted, baseball is a team sport. Football, basketball, almost anything you know, except maybe tennis and golf are team sports. Yeah. And. Let's say, let's, you know, rewrite history and say that Alex Rodriguez had been traded away by the Yankees in the middle of his contract instead of their playing it out. There would still be a very potent New York Yankees baseball team in place. But if, you know, what if David, I'll give you a comparison. What if David Boys said, I've had it with Boy Schiller, I'm leaving that would be an existential moment for the firm, I imagine. I don't know how institutionalized it's become. I hope it's become quite institutionalized for the sake of the people who work there and their clients. But if that had happened, you know, a few years after he started the firm, I think it would have been a very perilous moment for the firm. The Yankees are going to continue to survive with or without any named individual. Well, I just answered part of my own question thinking about this. Uh, Rodriguez was under a somewhat binding contract. There was some certainty that he was going to be there for X number of years, Mm -hmm. whereas in a law firm, they can just pick up and leave. Yeah. And as you know, non-competes are unenforceable. And as a general matter of labor market economics, that's a good thing, but it's not an unalloyed good thing. It does have some consequences. 
All right, I'm going to ask someone else's question here. This is a question from your friend Alex Hamilton in London, who started Radiant Law. Love Alex. Um, Alex was a prominent partner in a big international law firm based in the U.S., he in London. But reading your work quite a bit, and that of some others who think similarly, he left some years ago, left the big firm, struck out on his own, and indeed, he does no billable hours in his firm, but he's also branched out creating his own technology, software, and other things, so he's expanded it. Uh, but he's a fan, and he has followed your advice on some things. And his question is, and it has to do with your most recent book, Tomorrowland, I think you set out seven scenarios, is it, um, if you would help me on that. And Alex said to ask you, which is your favorite scenario? <laughs> God, God bless you, Alex. <laughs> As you know, I resolutely uh, avoid predictions in the book. That's why the word scenarios is in the title itself. But let me parry the question for one moment and then try to answer it. So I, I will parry it as follows. Um, a lot of people in law firms say, what's the most threatening scenario as opposed to, you know, like what scenario are you rooting mm -hmm. for, Bruce? Because each, every one, if you take it at face value, except nothing changes. What are some of the examples of the scenarios? I forgot. Oh, okay. Um, talent wins. There's a scenario. Talent mm -hmm. and free agency win. Brand names win. Meaning, you know, if you're Latham, Scadden, Paul Weiss, Davis Polk, Allen and Overy, Boy Schiller, you know, you're in great shape. If you're one of those destination for nothing in particular firms, you may have some thinking to do. Uh, another is, I think, what has to be pretty obvious, nearly two decades into the 21st century, machines win. You know, IBM Watson turns out to be for real. Another scenario is new entrants win. So Radiant Law, Axiom, Novus, who knows, someday, if uh, regulatory barriers change, the big four accounting firms, we've certainly seen new entrants win in many, many industries. Um, the one that has surprised me the most over the last five years or so has been Tesla, because it's there are incredible barriers to entry in terms of capital to creating a new global car company to the point where I would have told you 10 years ago, if you asked me, it was impossible. Evidently not. <laughs> so I was wrong. But um, to get back to, to Alex's question, sort of, which is my favorite, I would cite to you the scenario that I write about in the second chapter of Tomorrowland, which is lawyer psychology and the partnership structure win. So let me just back up a, a second for the benefit of the vast majority of, of our audience who has not read the book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the first scenario is nothing changes. So that's pretty simple. Nothing changes and nothing has to change. Steady as she goes. The second scenario, lawyer psychology and the partnership structure win, is nothing changes despite the fact that things drastically need to change. But firms find themselves constitutionally incapable of making the changes they need to make because of lawyer psychology, skepticism, risk aversion, 
etc. And add to that the partnership structure, which as actually executed uh, operationally by many law firms means nearly overwhelming consensus is required before any um, material change can occur. And it's virtually impossible to get overwhelming consensus about anything. I mean, the firm's logo, it's impossible to get (laughs) consensus about. So firms, therefore, don't change despite the pressures of the market that they do change and, frankly, fail. John Maynard Keynes had a wonderful uh, characterization of it when he was writing about bankers in the Great Depression um, who would rather be ruined conventionally so they cannot be criticized than adapt to danger. And he certainly put his finger on something. Now, let me hasten to add This is not my favorite scenario in the sense that it's the one I'm rooting for, the one I want to see come true, but it's the most interesting one in a way because it's the one thing that the law firms themselves have control over. They can't control the pace of, you know, advances in in IBM Watson or whether or not the big four come in or... You know, if uh, the A-Rod model takes over, they can't really control that, but they can control decisions they make about their own firm's evolution and adaptation. And certainly, if you read any business history, and I read more than my share of it, I don't know why, but the almost universal story of incumbent stalwart, grand, wonderful firms failing is they brought it on themselves. Hmm. Well, I have one more question. And it's, you've been analyzing and writing about big laws of business for a long time. And looking at your early work, where do you think you really nailed it? And then I'd like to know where on others you later were surprised. Sure. Well, if I, you know, it's a, that's a, I don't think I've ever asked myself that question or anybody else has ever asked me, but let me tell you what my honest, candid answer is, where I think I nailed it, was creating Adam Smith-esque to begin with. I looked around the web at the time and I didn't find a forum, a site of anything discussing the economics of and management of, of sophisticated law firms with the degree of I don't know, subtlety, probing, you know, discriminating economic analysis that I thought it deserved. And it turned out that there was indeed an unmet demand for that. I mean, certainly, you know, knock on wood, my my articles have been pretty widely read. Where I missed it is failing to foresee, understand, believe, frankly, how difficult it would be for law firms to change. If you look at the history of the new entrants, Radiant, Axiom, Novus, to some extent, Lawyers on Demand, you know, OnRamp, Paul Lippi, most of them have begun trying to market their offerings to law firms And almost all of them, the lawyers on demand, I think is the only exception, frankly, has said, this is not working. We're going to market to clients. And the smarter ones like 
Alex at Radiant haven't even paused for breath with law firms. They've just said, you know, forget it. We're going to clients. And I did not see that. You think of how sophisticated the lawyers are who are running these big firms. They're very bright. They're, you know, with the rarest of exceptions, they're just charismatic, you know, talented, wonderful, engaging people. And they're advising their clients on, in some cases, existential questions for the clients. And they don't behave the same way when it comes to their own firm. It surprises me to this day. Well, you know, I have another question, it seems. When we spoke the other day, you mentioned how you started the blog on stealth mode. And it sounds like you started it not knowing quite where it and you were going to go. You started on stealth mode. I'd like to know what you mean by that. And what happened that let you know that people were paying attention? This was a purely self-defensive measure. (laughs) But when I started Adam Smith Ask, I thought, you know, this may not work, right? I mean, I've had ideas in my life that have not worked, and this could be one of them. So when I say stealth mode, I just started writing articles without telling anybody except my wife about it. It wasn't, you know, password protected or on a dark server or anything. It was just who the hell's going to type in adamsmithesq.com and see where they end up. And the answer was, you know, nobody's going to do that. So, you know, would I find things that I thought it was worth writing about? Would I get sick of writing articles? Would I, you know, just lose gas? Would I decide that this wasn't as interesting as I thought it was? And none of those things were true. So after a few months with a, you know, decent selection of of articles up there, I just started telling a few friends, you know, and the word spread. And the, um, the beauty of it, I think, in hindsight was twofold. Number one, I found out that, you know, I actually enjoyed this and had an appetite for it. And it was, it was not hard to keep up the, the output that you need, you know, as a, in a marathon <laughs> event like this to publish 1600 articles over 15 years. But the other thing was when people went to the site, there was stuff there. It wasn't like, hello world, this is my first article. Now, that's great. And I could tell friends and word began to spread, but I didn't have any sense at all of how the market was really receiving it until a few years later. And I was asked to speak at a a lunch event for all the partners in Jones Day's uh, Washington office, which is a big office for Jones Day. There were probably 60 or 70 people in the room. So I was introduced, you know, Bruce McEwen, he's from New York, blah, blah, blah. And people are looking at their napkins. And then the uh, the guy introducing me got around to saying, Bruce writes Adam Smith-esque. And all of a sudden, it was like heads snapped up. And people said, really? This is the guy who writes Adam Smith-esque? And I thought, well, <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> An overnight success after three years. <laughs> um, but that was the moment when I thought, yeah, maybe this is going to work after all. And it has. I love that story. I want to thank you again for visiting with us, Bruce. It has been my great pleasure. I hope your audience enjoyed it half as much as I did. Thanks. 
And I want to thank our listeners, too. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And then come back for another ABA Journal Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.